Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we're going to talk about economics. It's a running theme this year. It's an important topic, something that uh, a certain kind of philosopher would hate to bother with. But it's, uh, it's so important, and it's become such a, an important part of our lives. And we've already had one former uh, Schumacher, uh, I shouldn't say former, but we've, we've had one Schumacher alumna, and we're going to have another one today. And if you don't know E.F. Schumacher, he was an important economist, wrote a wonderful book that we're going to talk about today directly. It's called Small is Beautiful. And my guest is a Schumacher alum who has done some really interesting work, and we're also going to be talking about her work, and so I'm excited about that as well. And so our guest for dialogue today is Kate Rudd. Kate is a multilingual research consultant, a facilitator and writer working at the intersection of inner development, social innovation, and transformational change, all things that philosophers would be excited to talk to her about. She supports organizations contributing to social and ecological regeneration to catalyze transformative change through insight, strategy, and communication. Kate holds an MA in Regenerative Economics with distinction from Schumacher College, named after E.F. Schumacher, and she has first-class undergraduate degrees in Applied Languages, Economics, and Law from universities in France, Spain, and the UK, which is her nation of origin. At present, Kate is collaborating with the United Nations Development Program's Conscious Food Systems Alliance as a local food systems leadership consultant. She is conducting her own academic research at the intersection of food systems transformation and the inner dimensions of transformative change, and she is engaged in business incubation projects and content creation projects for several grassroots organizations promoting regenerative agriculture in Africa and Latin America. Kate Rudd, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Hey, Nikos. Thank you for having me. Really great to have you. And so the, the Schumacher connection here, in part, I should mention, is the, it's the 50th anniversary of this book that E.F. Schumacher wrote. Let's see. Can we get it there? It's called Small is Beautiful. And I love the subtitle, which is really important to think about. Economics as if people mattered, because right now we have economics as if people don't really matter. <laughs> and how can we have economics as if people matter? So, Kate, it's really great to have you here. And uh, it's so, it, it must have been so exciting studying in the Schumacher curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a real gift um, and an experience that I'll never forget. Uh, truly inspirational place, and I would recommend for anyone to visit or study there. Super. So we are going to start by taking a look at a chapter of E.F. Schumacher's book. So those of you who haven't read it, you don't have to worry. It's, it, his writing is really accessible. And one of the reasons I, I like this book, if you're going to read one book on economics, Schumacher's book mentions the word wisdom more often than most economists would. And not in the even in the trite sense of, oh, what is the economic wisdom about such and such a thing? But he's really interested in wisdom and how we can proceed wisely 
And maybe we could uh, just to say a couple things about him very briefly. He he really earned a lot of respect. He was um, I think during World War Two, but just before the war, he immigrated to England, emigrated from Germany, in, and became a, a, an immigrant in England. And then he was put in an internment camp, and uh, but, and so he was doing hard labor in this internment camp. I think growing food. I think he was working in the fields, and then in between. Uh, working, he was writing a, an essay on economic theory that he submitted, and then the famous uh, British economist John Maynard Keynes saw this, recognized that Schumacher was a bright guy, and that he w- wanted to free him from the internment camp, so he got him liberated so that he could work on economic stability during the war with, with Keynes and others. And so uh, that's how he kind of immediately revealed his brilliance. And then he went on to do a lot of uh, important work in in the British uh, economic system and helping to rebuild Europe and so on and so on and so on. And he became particularly famous when he wrote an essay called Buddhist Economics, which is in this book. And uh, it shows, again, that orientation toward philosophical wisdom. He wasn't a Buddhist, but he was recognizing the, the philosophy as having wisdom in it. And Kate, you chose the chapter on scale. That's right, yeah, uh, which is entitled uh, Question of Size. And uh, yeah, interestingly enough, actually, uh, despite the title of the book, uh, one of the first things I learned at Schumacher, and which you will learn yourself if you read the book, is that um, Schumacher is more concerned with uh, the appropriateness of scale rather than in everything being small and local, as the title suggests. Um, And I thought that was quite interesting because it feels like uh, at the moment in regenerative circles, uh, it feels like scale has become almost a dirty word for some people. And I believe that's because of its association with size and people automatically assuming when you talk about scaling as a verb that you mean to get bigger. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, as I think this uh, chapter demonstrates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Because that's where he starts. He starts with this conventional wisdom that he was raised up with. He says that, you know, the bigger is better. And there's a reason for that, in that the capitalist system, in order to do what it does, which it's, it, it economics says if people matters, makes sense as a, a concern when you realize that capitalism is not interested in people. It's only interested in profit. It's very, that's, and we're supposed to believe that that's okay, that pursuing profit, then everything, good things will fall out, which is a nonsensical suggestion that this abstraction called profit, that if you pursue that, then good things will happen as opposed to which Adam Smith recognized, no, you need to pursue wisdom and then good things will come. But, you know, he kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, I find it to be schizophrenic on his part. He says, well, let's do this anyway. But what he is um, aware of is that that system understands that mass is as important as, or actually becomes more important than rate. When, When you're thinking of how do I maximize profit, you might think, well, I want to get the biggest profit margin. And that's not the capitalist uh, understanding, is that the mass is far more important. If I, can, if I make two cents per item, but I sell a billion of them, that's much better than making a million dollars per item, but I only sell two of them. So it's, 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 if, if you're consistently able to have a big mass and you grow that mass, then you're going to make a lot more money over, over time, right? Yeah, right. And um, I think in general, it's, it's one of the, the 
faulty assumptions of Western thinking, you know, that especially since we've embraced neoliberalism, um, that, you know, we've kind of subscribed to this culture of more and bigger is better and all growth is good, irrespective of, of <laughs> the consequences. And also that, you know, that economic growth is essential. Um, but really, when we look at nature, you know, I, I think that it, that's not always the case, you know, unchecked health sorry, unchecked growth can be quite unhealthy. Um, and, you know, for example, we would see that in in, in a tumour, you know, where, where the body keeps growing uh, unrelentlessly, um, then, then that causes illness. And I think pursuing kind of exponential economic growth in the way that we are doing on a planet of finite resources um, is really no longer feasible. And it's, it's resulting in an ecocide, which if that continues, it's going to result in the collapse of civilization potentially. Um, you know, and, and I think in the short term, it's it's just like you were saying, simply created an economic model that's in service of the few and 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 not the the majority. You know, it's just in service of the one percent. And and as Schumacher says, we need to really rethink that so that it's in service of, of people and the planet. Yeah, I mean, there are two levels there, right? Economics. So one of the phrases from this particular chapter that we're looking at is that um, it, it, instead of uh, mass production, production by the masses is what he says. We need to move away mm -hmm. from mass production to production by the masses. But it's also, again, that it's not even serving the, the few. It, there's an apparent service to them. I mean, it seems like it in relative terms. And of course, lots of us would think, I'll take Elon Musk's money any day if you want to give it to me. But what he's saying is that if the c conditions of life are collapsing, then mm -hmm. no people, no beings, no sentient beings are being served. We're only serving this abstraction. And and as mm -hmm. you point out, if you scale up something that's unhealthy, then it becomes increasingly dangerous. As the tumor gets bigger, your, your life is more at risk. And as it spreads, your life is more at risk. And that's part mm -hmm. of what we're seeing. So maybe, um, let's see, where, where, where would you like to start? I mean, that's a good way. One thing I wanted to note was even just a couple of the passages in here that are so interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. He says, It is a strange phenomenon indeed that the conventional wisdom of present-day eco economics can do nothing to help the poor. Invariably, it proves that only such policies are viable as have, in fact, the result of making those already rich and powerful richer and more powerful. And that seems to be speaking directly to the point that you were making. And, and then he goes on to say, what is the meaning of democracy, freedom, human dignity, standard of living, self-realization, fulfillment? Is it a matter of goods or of people? Of course it is a matter of people, but people can be themselves only in small, comprehensible groups. Therefore, we must learn to think in terms of an articulated structure that can cope with a multiplicity of small-scale units. Yeah, right. And I think that's very much it. I think his vision was that human scale should be the default position in, in everything, really, from decision-making you know, within companies to growing and distributing food through to generating energy, um, you know, and that, that the idea is to, to, to minimise the distance between decision and consequence or between production and consumption as much as possible so that people can see 
the systemic cause and effect. And we're not living in these huge systems where that are so complex that nobody is really aware of how different factors are interacting. Right. Yes, that's that's part of it, isn't it? Yes, minimizing that distance because ethically speaking, we have to we can't say that an action is ethical until we've accounted for all of its consequences. And that doesn't mm-hmm. matter what our ethical theory might be because there are there is an ethical theory that is called consequentialism which is mm-hmm. very interested in in consequences and and of course in Britain that became important through John Stuart Mill it was called utilitarianism in that case and so it's about the but that's not the only dimension of ethics but it is an important one and so it is to say you can't make an ethical decision if you if you don't sense directly the consequences of your action and so yeah. you're talking about how just with scale something something is going on in China, but the, the pollution then blows eventually over here, and we have consequences here. But why is it happening? Well, because we have Walmart and we have all these other things over here that are making people sometimes don't even get that. They'll they'll blame China as being a polluting country, but they are so because we're a consuming country. They wouldn't yeah. be producing all they're producing if we didn't have the Walmarts and the Amazons to facilitate the selling of those products. So that's why they pollute. But but the distance is so removed, we don't see it necessarily. And it's interesting, too, at, at, because he mentions democracy, and mm. it's such a problem uh, that we're not seeing that the sheer scale of, of nations that we've created. I mean, here in the U.S., we, we have 300 million people represented by 535 people at the national level. It's an extraordinary, how could we possibly think? And we have this uh, really ridiculous system. We have like a House of Lords called the Senate, and mm-hmm. every state has two senators. It doesn't matter what the size or, of, or scale of the state. So Wyoming, which has a tiny population, has two senators, even though California is much larger and only has two. So why would we possibly have the same number of representatives? And then similarly, in our kind of more parliament, which we call the House of Representatives, it's just 435 people representing 300 million. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. that representation has been divided in abstract ways so that you really can't sense that there's democracy at work. I mean, even the joke of, oh, well, we're not a democracy, we're a representative or federalist system, it's all diluted. And the research here, and again, I I don't know how different it is in Britain, but the research here shows that if you have any conflict between what what the wealthy and powerful want and what the general populace would like. So if we poll people in the U.S., Mm -hmm. consistently a majority would like to have a single-payer health system, maybe not exactly like yours, but in the same spirit, you have a single Mm -hmm. uh, national health system. The majority of U.S. citizens want that, but it conflicts with the insurance industry and the people who make money off the system that we have. So when that conflict emerges consistently the populace will lose out here. And there's been good work on that. And, and uh, any, anybody who wants, you can email me, I can send you that work. But it's really interesting. Is it like that there too? I mean, do people, are people talking about how difficult this is, dealing with scale and democracy? Um, I think that in the UK, I can speak for the UK, yes. uh, you know, um, <clears throat> well, particularly England, um, proportional representation doesn't exist there either. Uh, it's a huge issue. Um, you know, we have a government currently in power that has not been elected by the majority of the population that does not represent the interests of the vast majority of the population. 
and um, you know not to the same extent as is occurring in the UK uh, in the US but I mean you know I think given the extent of lobbying and and the funding of political parties I think it's fair to say that none of us are living in a democracy we're living in a plutocracy um, and you know I think I think that's that's um evidenced by the the continuing erosion of uh, fundamental rights that we're seeing um, all around the world, but also particularly in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, uh, and it's quite amazing how invested we all are in the system as well. There are some some mm-hmm. uh, episodes, contemplations that go together with this one, and, and in one of them, which might, I don't know where, how things will be released, but I have one on the what Lewis Mumford called the magnificent bribe, which I call mm-hmm. the magnificent swindle, that we are being swindled into going along with the system because uh, there's a, a, th- a political theorist named Sheldon Wolin who had this idea of inverted totalitarianism. And there are a few theorists working with this idea that if you have a classic totalitarian regime, there you have rule by force, you know, like Putin is the strong man. And mm-hmm. there is a threat of violence, a threat that you could be imprisoned and, and so on. And, and that's that you could have much worse regimes. But in uh, nations like the US and Britain, you, you can't threaten to cudgel people. I mean, there is a real threat of violence. The threat is enough. And there is some violence. And of course, in marginalized groups, they experience that violence. But the main way to keep people going is by bribing them through the comforts that the system lets to trickle down, you know, that even if you're really poor in the US, you might have a television or, you know, a laptop and and access to the internet. So you can be entertained and you can get, you can go to McDonald's and get, you know, food that's unhealthy, but it, it keeps you satiated and it's addicting. And so you have these kind of creature comforts that seem like a big deal, relatively speaking to somebody in Africa who doesn't even have a refrigerator. But um, so it keeps us going along and we don't necessarily realize at a conscious level how much we're being swindled and how much we're, we feel powerless. But that seems to be part of the crisis that's, um, that's emerging, that people are feeling powerless. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because then when we feel powerless, we don't feel that we can change it. And at the same time, there's this kind of fomenting tension in people. And there's, there's even, you know, people starting to act out in positive and negative ways. So what what else shall we talk about in this chapter before? Because we're going to talk about your work, and I want to make sure that we leave time for that. But in this chapter, what else what else jumped out for you that you would like to move on to next? I'm happy to lead, but I like following too sometimes, you know. Yeah, um, I think uh, one, one of the really interesting quotes that I pulled out from the chapter um, was where uh, uh, Schumacher talks about the greatest danger invariably arising from the ruthless application on a vast scale of partial knowledge, such as we're currently witnessing in the application of technology, industrial agriculture, transportation, and countless other things. Oh, yeah. I, I love that because, of course, that's part of the meaning. You might not know this because we haven't had much time to talk, but that's part of the meaning of dangerous wisdom. Mm. So the idea is there are two meanings of, of it. The the primary, the, the nice meaning of dangerous wisdom is that true wisdom is dangerous to structures of power, both inside of us and outside of us. 
But Socrates, 2,600 years ago, he would go around to the Elon Musks of his time and he would ask them, you know, look, because I always pick on Elon Musk. I know he's, it's not just him, but Jeff Bezos too. He could go to Jeff Bezos and say, you have this massive company. But Musk, I'm thinking of because of scale, right? The largest mm-hmm. office building or, or whatever you might say, the largest building in the world, five points, maybe four million square feet is in Nevada. It's massive, and it's called the Gigafactory. I don't know if you've heard of the Gigafactory. This is the biggest building in the world, 5.4 million square feet, and it's to produce batteries. And so uh, Socrates would say, look, you're building the largest building in the world. You're flying rockets into space. You must really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And and so I want to learn from you because you must be so wise to intervene in the world at such a massive scale. And, of course, in, invariably he would find out that the people didn't really have wisdom. But at first they were always very confident, which I'm sure Musk would be because he's, he's very clever. There's no question. I'm sure his IQ is fairly high. But that's not wisdom from, from the Socratic or even other uh, philosophical traditions. And so what, what Socrates would find out, he, it seemed to him that people would have what, what he might have called partially correct opinions. Uh, the, what I would say is they have fragments of wisdom because he's saying that it's partially correct, so it's only a, a piece of the picture, and it's an opinion because wisdom is not a matter of opinion, but it just happens to be you have an idea that has a little fragment of wisdom in it, and the problem is that we then run around applying the fragment because wisdom is what works, wisdom is what actually functions in the world, then a fragment will give you traction. It will appear to function, and you will then think that you know what you're doing, even though you only have a partially correct opinion. You don't have the wisdom, you just, but you think, I know. And you operate on that basis, and what Socrates is saying is that as you scale that up, the consequences get larger. As you go from your little life doing business transactions to, you know, running the culture and making decisions that affect everybody, then the consequences are going to get increasingly large and it will threaten the culture as a whole. It will threaten, in other words, civilization as you know it eventually. So there's a way in which I sometimes think Socrates would be horrified to see this, but also say, well, what did I tell you? You know, I, you guys didn't change anything for 2,600 years. You kept l- allowing people and not recognizing that this partial, this fragment of wisdom is very dangerous then to the conditions of life and to yourself. That's the other meaning. So a fragment of wisdom is dangerous to everybody. Real wisdom is only dangerous to ignorance. It's only dangerous to our own ignorance and to the structures of power. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think one example that I, I guess I could think of, 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 of where that, that has happened in the past, um, you know, is, is, is the, this idea of where, where it feels like bigger is better. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we've got now got the technology to be doing something. So therefore we should do it and we should continue to do it regardless of whether we need to be doing it. Is the uh, the surplus production of crops, you know, uh, using industrial farming techniques uh, such as tilling and agrochemicals that's been happening ever since World War Two, you know, when it was really encouraged because not enough food was being produced in the UK and Europe to feed the population. Um, but, you know, which today has, has resulted in, in uh the degradation of soil fertility, um, you know, the, the incapacity of the ground to retain water, the undervaluing of food, um, and the dependence of farmers on, on, on payment of subsidies just to make a living. 
Um, and, and, and also, you know, um, <laughs> where, where these are, oh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's okay. But I really like the things that you're talking about because it's so interesting how the pattern of insanity furthers itself that the farmer plants to get the subsidy rather than to sell their crop in some cases, that that's the mm. reason they're planting and that they're using a process which is actually the way the pattern of insanity works, right, is that you're, you're using processes that create problems rather than create fertility and vitality. You don't further the conditions of life. You extract from the conditions of life. And there's mm -hmm. a disconnect because we just go into the grocery store and buy the thing and we don't see the degradation of the soil. And so mm -hmm. some farmers can see it. Other farmers have to be kind of convinced that you could farm without those processes. And so that's what happens sometimes, right, when regenerative agriculturalists, and that's a broad umbrella, but that when someone is who, who begins to understand that we could work with natural systems and that that's far more powerful, mm -hmm. then they start to teach other farmers, well, look what can happen to your soil if you stop you know, doing things the way that you've been taught is the right way to do it. And there's a disconnection then. It's so interesting, too, how that alienation works, because we think Karl Marx is some weirdo, but he was a pretty bright guy. I'm not a, a, I, I'm, even when you critique the system, it's like saying, oh, what are we going to do, become a bunch of Maoists? But no, it's just to say, is there a legitimate critique? And when mm -hmm. Marx is talking about alienation, the farmer is getting alienated from the soil, from the land. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. scale, that seems to be part of what Schumacher is getting at in scale, is that we get alienated from each other. Because mm -hmm. remember, he was saying, like, for humans to function, in the passage I read, he used that phrase, comprehensible. It has to be like, we have to be able to make sense of our relationships and understand what we're doing in the world. And we're totally cut off from spiritual and ecological realities. Because most of us have no idea where the food comes from. We don't really know our neighbors sometimes in larger cities because cities are, you know, are a scale problem that he's talking about too. Okay, I've, I've, yeah. I've gone. I don't want to uh, <laughs> take over there, but yes, yeah, wherever you'd like to go from there. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, he, he does talk about cities and, um, you know, he talks about the, the pathological growth of cities. Yeah. And um, he talks about how structure which used to be kind of implicit in society because people were relatively immobile has now collapsed um, because of the the development of transportation and communications and technology and that's tipping us towards chaos and I mean he wrote this what 50 years ago now <laughs> um, and I feel like that trajectory has has continued uh way past probably what even he would have expected and you know he talks about uh Society lacking in inner cohesion um, and, and that creating political instability. And that's exactly where we're at. Yeah. That's exactly where we're at. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think in, in reality, what, what he's talking about isn't, isn't necessarily with scale, you know, it's not necessarily sort of big or small or global or local or, or rural or urban. It's, it's about finding the optimal size and the optimal organization for the context. And, uh, you know, whether that's a community or a system or an organization. And, and I think that in order to do that, you know, we can, we can really look towards nature because uh, it, it really does is the, the, the original master of sustainable design. So, you know, I, I'm very inspired by biomimicry myself. 
um and uh and and uh the the idea of the pluriverse i don't know if you've had the opportunity to to read the book um but it's a, it's a book by uh edited in by arturo escabar uh, ashish Katari and many other fantastic uh contributors and uh you know they they sort of within the book it's a series of essays a collection of essays and they kind of envision the world designed with with those principles in mind it's beautiful yeah I mean, the, it, this is also a good example of dangerous wisdom, though, because what, what is happening a lot in biomimicry is that we're using biomimicry to perpetuate the system. It's not that it doesn't have potential. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it does. But I, I think even uh, Jane Benius, wasn't it uh, she who gave the example of of uh, taking some industrialists out into nature and then they redesigned their plastic water bottle? And so, like, on the one hand, she was saying, well, you know, it does use a lot less plastic and, you know, because they, they were, it was mimicking, I think, tree structure in some way. And they realized that just by mimicking tree structure, it would make the bottle more stable. But unfortunately, it wasn't occurring to them that, well, what we need to do is not sell bottled water anymore. We have, you know, so it's weird how that, that's not the fault of biomimicry. That is um, another classic problem in philosophy that I usually use the term spiritual materialism. And what spiritual materialism says that we, we all have to be aware of, especially if we want to make changes in the world, it says that whatever idea, philosophy, practice, whatever, and it could be biomimicry, it can be Buddhist philosophy, Platonic philosophy, Christianity, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it can be used to perpetuate structures of power and domination and aggression and so on and injustice rather than liberating us from them, even if that's their intent. So even if I come out and say my intent with biomimicry is to make us more sane, it doesn't mean that it can't be used to keep the insanity going. So that's not the fault of biomimicry, but you're, you're right, because why would we want to use the thinking that degraded ecologies, when we, which is the human thinking, that's the great line from Gregory Bateson that I always, um, anybody listening has heard me say it a thousand times, but he said that the, the major problems in the world are a result of the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature actually works, the way nature functions. And that, that's what we're getting at when we're getting at biomimicry is can we be in tune with spiritual and ecological reality rather than trying our human agenda? But then it comes the question of what will you renounce? you know, on the basis of that, because if you think about biomimicry, nature doesn't produce plastic water bottles at all. So then you have to ask how you're going to do it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, it's, it's all very well to have principles, um, whether they're biomimicry or regenerative agriculture or any other kind of beautiful idea, like a green transition. But, you know, if, if the enactment of those principles isn't inspired by values and the right values and and like you said you know the the full wisdom and not just partial wisdom then it's unlikely that it will be a true solution mm. i like i wanted to return back to what you were saying about structure because i i, I think that's also really important and there was a way in which if you're, this is one of the differences, if you're rooted to a particular place, um, you understand a lot more about what that that land does for you. And of course, we have a duality between organism and environment, but when you're more rooted to the place and you have to relate with it with a certain degree of intimacy, then you sense how much you're given in an ongoing way. 
And so one of the things that he's talking about that challenges our notions of freedom is he, as you, as you were pointing out, that if, if it's very easy for me to move from California to uh, Montana, which is what a lot of Californians do, then I'll just do it, and there's no big deal. And I wasn't connected to the land in California, maybe, and then when I go to Montana, I'm not going to be any more connected. So the people in Montana dislike Californians because they're leaving California and going to Montana and bringing California with them. And this seems like freedom. And he's saying that, well, no, actually it can lead to degradation. And he talks about this idea of, of a dual society, and essentially uh, an increasingly large group of people who, because of this ability to move, which capitalism loves, that I can, the worker can be, if you're broke and in California, I can lure you to uh, maybe Silicon Valley or maybe I can lure you to some other urban environment because that's one of the ways that you attract workers. But... Um, this idea of a dual society is interesting because the U.S. and, see, developing nations are supposed to be um, sometimes characterized as moving out of a dual society and that if you are a truly developed uh, culture, you don't have a dual society. But in, So in the U.S., we would think of ourselves as very advanced, and I'm sure in the U.K. too. But there was some work done uh, at Georgetown University. It's one of our uh, kind of well-known universities over here. They, they, they have a center on education and workforce, and, and it showed that if you have a kindergarten child and they have scores in the bottom half of their school tests, so they're, they're, they're performing in the bottom half in terms of w whatever capacity they're showing. And we have to bracket a lot because education is a train wreck. But if, if they're scoring in the bottom of half of their school test, they still have a 70% chance of reaching a high socioeconomic status if their parents have a high socioeconomic status. Now, on the other hand, you have a child of poor parents, low socioeconomic st status. Even if that child scores in the top half of their school test, they have only a 30% chance of reaching a high socioeconomic status. So it's this bizarre inversion where you, you could be scoring in the bottom half. And so if you're asking, okay, I have to place a bet on here's a random child that we select from the supposedly developed, advanced, free United States – and I have a random child, and I want you to guess how well they're going to do in life. And you, you only get one piece of data about them. I could give you their IQ. I could give you their race, their gender, whatever you want to know. But you only get one piece of data. If you wanted to place that bet, the best piece of data would be how much money their parents make. And there was another guy um, who was talking about this, uh, an MIT economist named uh, Peter Temin. And he is saying that these are symptoms of what he would call a dual economy, which is typical of developing countries. So we're like, we're behind. And there was a, a, a book written called The Sun Also Rises, S-O-N, which is, a, of course, a play on Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. And uh, this is the economist Gregory Clark. And he showed that America has no higher rate of social mobility than medieval England or pre-industrial Sweden. Mm. So all, all of this is very interesting in terms of what the things that you mentioned and what we're talking about with Schumacher and scale and all these problems that he saw 50 years ago. Right, yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me remotely. I, I feel like when you look at the, the inequality gap 
in countries like the US, like the UK, you know, it's like we're we're so far from from being that ideal that that we supposedly have as developed nations, you know. And um what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, just, you know, the, this idea. But, like, for me, what you're saying is obvious because even in my research, like, tiny amount of research with... But, but it, it became very, very clear that the research subjects I was talking to who came from a background of privilege had a huge amount more of agency um, and in... <laughs> You know, because and 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 were able to act in much more regenerative ways than their peers who who didn't come from that privilege, simply because they had access to the resources. You know, whether they were financial resources, access to education, access to land that they were then able to cultivate, or um, you know, even a passport that um, enabled them to travel freely. To, to go and set up in in, in another country um, and 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 aside from the fact that it meant that they weren't then facing any structural kind of injustices or discrimination so um yeah sad and not surprising I, I feel yeah well it's interesting in the sense that of course yes there is this incredible injustice that we have at global and within nation scale. Uh, so, because it's funny, a lot, a lot of conservative commentators would love to say that uh, you and I, who are not in the one percent in our our nations mm-hmm. of of citizenship, are nonetheless in the global one percent, which I think is such a ridiculous thing to bother pointing out. It's really silly. It also, of mm-hmm. course, was that um, David Graeber, who was came up with sort of the phrase in collaboration. I mean, he was a very um, kind of. Uh, ecological thinker willing to say, well, you know, I didn't invent it on my own and, and uh, very much uh, kind of uh, anarchical in a good way. I mean, sometimes people think anarchy just means he just uh, mean, meant that he was a radical democrat. He was really committed to human freedom. But anyway, uh, he would have been the first to admit that it's not the, the one person, it's the point zero, maybe zero one percent. We're talking about, you know, a handful of people who have a huge, huge, huge amount. But sure, even on a relative scale, the one percent what am I getting at, though? I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's funny that we have so many advantages, and part of the way the system perpetuates itself is making people within, say, the U.S. and the U.K., if you're not in the 1%, you feel so powerless, even mm-hmm. though somebody in, in, say, Syria or, you, you know, um, certain places in, in the African continent or wherever it might be, those people might be so envious of all the advantages you have that you have a relatively free society that you, you, aren't, you aren't really necessarily going to just get thrown in prison for organizing a discussion about something that is critical to government. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's funny how we do have a lot of advantages that if we could figure out how to use them and then anybody who has more who might be listening here or who is is part of the these these more dominant the leading edge of the dominant culture um there's a lot of good that they could do then because they have that agency so if you happen to be mm-hmm. fairly wealthy you don't even have to be Elon Musk wealthy but if you happen to be fairly wealthy it could go a long way and we see like Bill Gates here has bought up a huge amount of agricultural land. I don't know if the news of that got over there, but just, he is a massive, he might be one of the biggest, he's definitely one of the biggest. I don't know that he's the biggest, but he has a huge, huge amount of farm uh, farmland. 
he could be orienting that toward regenerative practices. Right now, it's not even on the table, as far as I know, because his interest in them is not that way. It's not informed like that. But he could have such a huge impact. Mm So can we talk about your research then? Will you will you take us through it and tell us, you know, what was the, just wherever you'd like to begin. It's fascinating research, so t- t- take us through it. Sure, thank you. Um, so um, I guess, uh, so first of all, uh, my research is at the intersection of um, inner development, food systems transformation, and social innovation. And... Um, Going back to the food systems transformation, um, I, I guess it was at Schumacher that I became really interested in food systems as a pathway towards sustainability. Um, uh, after kind of learning about their their significance um, in terms of addressing the poly crisis, um, because they are responsible for the overstepping of planetary boundaries, um, I think agriculture industrial agricultural practices cause around like 30% of um, global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And um, they, uh, sorry, um, the industrial agriculture also contributes to um, biodiversity loss. And um, obviously we're we're currently living through the sixth mass extinction, um, which is largely due to land use change. because of things like massive rainforest um, destruction and um, also, you know, the the use of uh, pesticides like glyphosate. You know, we've lost something like 75% of insects in the last 30 years, which is pretty terrifying (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Um, And then another factor is, you know, the the kind of the, the tearing of the social fabric, which we've already touched on, uh, you know, we're, we're on the brink of a, a global food crisis. Um, you know, we've got declining soil, soil fertility. We've got crops failing around the world as a result of climate change and um, industrial agriculture. And, you know, the, the risk of hunger and uh, wars and unprecedented migration is is growing and growing and growing. Um, so all of those factors, you know, kind of, led me to see the transformation of food systems through regenerative agriculture, agroecology, other alternatives to conventional farming um, as a very bright pathway for change and one that's, you know, very tangible and within our reach uh, within the next 10 years if we would like to do that, um, if we're capable of doing that as a society. So, um in terms of my research, I wanted to explore the how of transformative change, because as I said, you know, if we want to do that, it's, it's much like tackling climate change. There, there is a will to do it, but it doesn't seem to be happening anytime fast. So what I really want to understand um, is how, how the transformative change kind of happens on the ground um as a way to um enable humanity uh to sort of address the the challenges of the the years ahead um so what i decided to do was to uh study nine different innovators 
who are founders of what I call deeply regenerative agricultural initiatives. And when I say deeply regenerative, I mean ones that kind of aim to regenerate the social, economic and ecological um, systems. Um, so let me just pick up on a couple of things. You're laying out so many important things. One of the things that I think is so fascinating is that we're quite disconnected from natural systems. We're disconnected from ecological and spiritual realities, which I see in non-duality. We, we sometimes separate these things. But we can't uh, really, say for instance, if you're religious, you can't really think that you are uh, living in accord with your religious tradition if some divine being made the world and you're not living in attunement with how that world functions. Because if you, if you were made and the world was made, you were made to fit it perfectly. And whatever divine intelligence is in you must also be in the world, and it must be that you have to live in attunement with that, rather than treating it like an object that you own and you can do whatever you want with, because there's no indication that that's supposed to be our orientation, that this is just a, an object and we can do whatever we want. It's, just, it's divinely made, say, in certain traditions. It doesn't matter what your tradition, though. Most traditions agree there's some kind of wisdom in the world. But then, so we have this disconnection, and it's so interesting because a person might, for instance, now think, well, I am a vegan for climate reasons, and and they, they, it kind of lets them off the hook. I, I mean, I've met vegans like this, because they're aware, for instance, that uh, that the way we raise cattle is a very mm-hmm. a, a negative impact on the environment, but you have to ask yourself how many beings died for the kale you're eating. And a lot of vegans don't want to do that. And you have to ask yourself, does it make more sense for you where you live right now to eat soy that was grown who knows how? I mean, sure, it says organic, it says non-GMO, but would it be a lot better for you to just buy, you know, buy local eggs if they were mm-hmm. humanely raised? Is that, so these kind of more complicated decisions that we might have to face, and that doesn't mean that a person has to eat eggs. I mean, if you're really not, uh, if that's not comfortable for you, okay. But the question is, are we really thinking about how food is produced and do we understand um, what the consequences are and how, we'll, you know, we might only have 50 harvests less, left if you look mm-hmm. at soil and, 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 and the state that the soil is in. And then there's a beautiful study that came out I've mentioned it before, I think, on the podcast, and I'll share it with you, but it's a beautiful study where the, the researchers were just looking at how illogical agriculture is, that if you simply moved things around, you would have an incredibly different world, and we would have we would take off huge amount of pressure. So, for instance, people growing rice someplace where if they just grew a different crop, <laughs> if you just stop growing rice there, let somebody else grow the rice. But for some reason, it's being grown there. And if you just made that change, and it's so interesting how the researchers, because you're talking about, you know, how what, what what how do you really get the the thing, the transformation to happen? Because the researchers were saying, well, people probably aren't going to listen to us. So they have like these these different tiers. Like if we really did everything just rational, and you you could just keep farming the way you are. <laughs> We could have a radical shift, and then they just keep going down to what they think maybe people would be willing to do. And it's mm. um, so you're looking at and this is one of the things I also love is that place where the inner that's the spiritual and ecological reality are meeting, even though we call it inner. I don't know that we should. I, I've joked before that um, the Plum Village Thich Nhat Hanh, great Zen master, they have a podcast called The Way Out Is In. 
which is a lovely phrase. How do I get out of this mess? You have to go in. But I sometimes like to say, but the way in is out also, because the, there is a spiritual reality out there that we don't have to divide away. But you are in some ways talking about that, that the way out is in. We have to include inner development, which the philosopher in me again is saying, yes, that's, that's right. If we don't have some sense of mindfulness, cultivation of insight, ethics, these elements that are all part of the wisdom tradition, that that can inform us and can help us to make the transition we, we, we want to make. So, And then you were looking for people who were innovators in, in these different dimensions, and you found n nine of them, you, you said. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually interesting that you what you've just said, because the, the title of my forthcoming article is going to be Inside Out Transformation. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Super relevant. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, exactly. So I, what I did was to, to try to find um, innovators who were working with this deeply regenerative philosophy, um, who were trying to heal not only the land, um, and the ecosystem, but the more than human, and the more than human, but also the human, you know. Um, and so, what I did was I I kind of searched for paradigmatic cases in very very diverse contexts. So I um, interviewed uh, these innovators in six different countries, uh, some in the global south, some in the global north, in four different languages. You know, they had, as well as a lot of um, geographic diversity, uh, you know, they're, they're, they were from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, very different uh, political contexts as well. And what I looked for was uh, what what were the commonalities between one between them? What were the meta patterns that I was picking up? Um, and I wanted to understand uh, what what were the common factors that enabled them to engage in the type of regenerative work that they were doing. And um, to do that, I kind of particularly focused on what I called inner capacities. Um, there's, there, these are called different things in, in the literature, but, you know, inner transformative skills, capacities or qualities that really kind of inform and enable their work. Um, and then I also looked at the outcomes of their work and uh, the strategies that they're using to try to scale their impact. Um, and uh, I kind of concluded by considering whether there's any potential for their efforts to bring about a collective shift in consciousness, you know, something that could really constitute a paradigm change and lead to rapid transformation um, in terms of scaling deeply regenerative ag agriculture, so our external transformation on, on the land and of ecosystems. Um, and then what I found uh, was that actually uh, all of them possessed these five what I call core capacities, which were awareness, so the ability to, to really direct their attention, be present, uh, insight, so, you know, that kind of comprised lots of things like a really um, holistic understanding, um, being able to work with complexity, etc., critical thinking, connection, so connection not only to um, the more than human and the land and place, but also to each other, uh, to, to their community, to those around them and to themselves. 
Um, and then uh, lastly, motivation, a sense of purpose and agency. So that kind of ability to, to mobilise the resources and the knowledge that they need to act. Um, and what I also found was that these, these capacities, these inner capacities aren't necessarily innate. It's not something that they were all born with or certainly not all of them to the extent that they're developed now. They're something that develop over time and with experience and that are nurtured in enabling environments. And what I mean by enabling environments is environments in which, um, which are very conducive to, to the development of, of these particular capacities. Um, and also nurtured by catalyzing events. So, uh, kind of very specific events, maybe kind of, um, emotional reactions or crises in their life that empower them to engage in this regenerative work. Um, and then what I found in terms of the outcomes that they were achieving, um, and again, this is common to all of the innovators that I looked at, was that as well as restoring um, what Charles Massey uh, refers to as the five different landscape functions, which are carbon cycle, the water cycle, um, biodiversity and healing human and more than human aspects of the landscape. Um, they were also adopting uh, scaling strategies to try to um, kind of scale the impact of their work um, both out through replication, so reaching more numbers of people who they would then inspire to take away their ideas and, and replicate them or prototype and adapt like adapt them to, to their place, um, scaling up, so trying to influence um, laws and policy through advocacy, and then scaling deep, which I think is perhaps one of the most important parts of transformative change. So that's trying to change the culture through, um, you know, through changing the narrative and, and really kind of spreading new values and, and new ways of, of, of understanding the world. And so I kind of concluded that by doing that, they're, they're almost like prefiguring this inside out transformation. So they're, they're kind of inspiring um, paradigm shifts or gestalt changes in other individuals um, that they reach. And, um, you know, the, the, these different um, kind of actions that they're taking have the potential in the right circumstances to kind of break out into wider systemic change. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there too, there's a, such a strong resonance with the wisdom traditions because awareness is something that, so some of these things, they, they are skills that are so intimate that we could make this distinction between skills that we acquire and skills that we are. So if everything is interwoven, for instance, then we are relational beings. But th nevertheless, we have to cultivate the capacity for connection, true connection. And one way to define wisdom would be skillful interwovenness or skillful relationality or skillful connectedness. Uh, or in, in um, the Buddhist tradition, there's even this uh, uh, particular vehicle of Buddhist uh, philosophy in Tibetan. It's Dzogchen in, uh, in Sanskrit. It would be Mahasandhi, which is the great connection. And it mm. is releasing oneself into the great connectedness. And so awareness, very similar, that uh, we can, it's the wisdom traditions that know 
the capacities of human awareness and human attention. We don't know them, I and mean, we can kind of discover them in a hit-and-miss way, but we have this whole set of traditions that can teach us how we could cultivate an awareness, the kind of mind that would be serviceable in relationship to natural systems, because the mind that we're operating on, usually we go around and we're using our mind, and it doesn't register to us that that mind is out of its mind. Because consciousness just reveals things in such a way that we think this is how they are. We look, and I am conscious of, of looking at the screen and seeing Kate Rudd there. Consciousness doesn't write a sign over top of our experience that says, this is just how I'm rendering it because of you and how you are. This is a projection. It's a confection, a construction. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that. We just see things. So mm-hmm. we go to the grocery store and we just see the food there. We don't realize that we are, we, there's some kind of inherent a set of metaphysical assumptions about how it got there and what it means. And so if we perceive, you know, there's some people who, sometimes I say, for instance, that uh, human beings, it would be great if human beings reacted to plastic the way horses do, because if you go to a horse and you have, a, like I say, a plastic Tesco bag, you know, or whatever it might be, you have your plastic, you wave a plastic bag at a horse and they'll, their instinct is to bolt. And we think they're so silly. Oh, look how dumb. It's just a plastic bag. But really, that should be, it would be nice if that were a reaction, that that is completely unnatural, and we should run in the other direction, but we don't do that. And similarly, with the other skills that you mentioned, when you talk about motivation and agency, Socrates would, would agree, Socrates and Buddha and so many philosophers agree that human beings have to earn agency, that we actually don't understand free will very well at all. We don't know mm-hmm. what it means. And so we're always talking about f- free will, like as if I can will whatever I want, rather than the wisdom traditions suggesting that we have to, that free will means a liberated will. And liberated for what? Well, liberated for the appropriate motivations. Socrates said, I, I can't define justice, but I've never acted unjustly. So somehow I, I have the right motivation to do things. And Kant also said this. He said uh, that there is nothing in this world or even beyond it which is unequivocally good, that is good without any exceptions, because lots of things are good, but you have to make an exception. Chocolate might be good, but okay, with the exception you can't eat too much. And So whatever it is that you imagine, it, it's it's good, but with exceptions. He said, but there's there's one thing that is good, without any exception, and that is a truly good will. That is the right motivation, a true, proper motivation. And uh, he felt that oh, the divine has that, and we human beings have to try to figure out how to get as close to it as we can, that that's the whole goal of human development. So it's interesting how those elements that you chose, of course you're, you're working with inner development, but it's quite wonderful how deeply they resonate with the wisdom traditions and that mm-hmm. this might be part of how we could scale in the ways, the different ways that you're talking about is that we have to see that we, have, we are victims of truly bad philosophy. And a lot of it is invisible to us because we think philosophy is some abstraction, but that's because the culture keeps us away from just these common factors which are in the wisdom traditions which would lead to a change. So in other words, it's the very immune system of the pattern of insanity that keeps us away from these common factors that you find. It wants to distract us all the time. And it wants to keep our motivation for money, like you know, Schumacher is trying to say, well, we don't need to be motivated to produce goods. They'll produce themselves. We have to be motivated to take care of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's, you know, no coincidence that uh, one of the 
enabling environments that I found for all of the innovators that I spoke to, bearing in mind how diverse um, the the kind of the sample was, um, was was uh, you know traditional that their kind of engagement with traditional ecological wisdom, spirituality, and other ways of knowing. You know, without fail, they had all kind of really engaged in some way or another with. Uh, an alternative, unconventional kind of epistemology. And, you know, I think that brought so much more richness and clarity to their mental models and, uh, you know, kind of enabled them to think much more systemically in less in, in a less reductionist and dualist way. Um, and, and, and that was a huge inspiration for them, not only in terms of their motivation, because they received a lot of support and encouragement and, uh, you know, a lot of um, kind of, uh, yeah, encouragement to, to, to align, to understand and align with their values, which I think is something that is perhaps lacking in certainly the Western mainstream education system. Mm. Um but also in terms of, you know, things like connection, um, uh, it, it, their, their, their experience in, in that kind of an environment had, had really enabled them to have this kind of self-reflexivity and, and ability to kind of, um, you know, question themselves and metacognition, if you like, that, that, that really enabled them to, to kind of connect with and well, to see and understand that they're connected uh, in in kind of an, an entangled in a web of life, and that everything on in this world is is interconnected and interdependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. And all. I think that brings. Sorry, I think that brings with it um, a very different experience of of empathy. And, uh, you know, again, it's a motivating factor to, to act regeneratively mm-hmm. because by healing others, you're, you're also healing yourself. That's right. Yes. You can, can we, because we have, as I've often talked about, a self-help catastrophe and the self-help catastrophe comes out of the self-help industrial complex, which puts our healing in a localized thing so that I heal, but at the, at the deficit of the world, I have to extract from the world to heal. But here you're mm-hmm. talking about healing self and world at the same time, and also self and other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that there's a parallel there in the spontaneous remission database. Kelly Turner, I, I've mentioned this research before, but Kelly Turner did a PhD on, uh, there's a database that is kept by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is here in California, and uh, they, uh, because if somebody has cancer and they're supposed to die from it and then it goes away, the doctors just call this spontaneous remission, which means we don't know what happened. And uh, it doesn't fit in the medical model. And mm-hmm. But Kelly Turner was wondering if there were common factors there. And of course, one of the common factors was a spiritual turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that it, you know, if you get cancer and you suddenly become spiritual, you're going to ha- experience remission. It's just that it was a common factor. And she's saying, I can't explain how these people, there is no explanation within the paradigm for how they healed. But I'm mm-hmm. bringing this up because of the fact that that fits with the need for potentially a spontaneous remission of our insanity. Or you, mm-hmm. I mean, you've made the analogy, and lots of people do, to you know, a, t- a kind of tumor that's out of, out of mm-hmm. control. 
But if, if instead of even trying to think, well, we'll heal it and we know what to do, instead, if we said, well, we don't know what to do, it's a big mess. But if we did things that would lead to a spontaneous remission, and if spirituality is one of them, and of course, changing diet is a big part of it, um, learning about herbs and learning that there are medicines in the world, these are, that's also part of it, uh, social, social kinds of relations, having more meaningful connections with people, uh, developing friendships. And, and so these sorts of things are in this spontaneous remission database. And could that be that that's, uh, there's a mirror there for us to think about? And I also like how you're talking about the different ways of knowing that uh, we currently know the world in astonishingly limited and limiting ways, also fragmented and fragmenting ways. And mm-hmm. how do we know better? How do we know ourselves better? How do we know each other better? And how do we know the world better? And that's a very hard thing for us to comprehend because we think we just, again, knowledge just presents itself as this is what we know. And we miss the fact that knowledge depends on our way of knowing. And then it ultimately that means it depends on the knower. If you want better knowledge, if you want more insight, you're using the word insight too, that insight depends on a change in you. You don't just get to, I tell you the insight and then, oh, now I'm changed. The spiritual traditions say, no, as you change, you become amenable to insight, which you couldn't Mm -hmm. have had before. Right. And sometimes it does take a a crisis to provoke that. And so you were talking about this. Nobody wants to quote Milton Friedman too much. I I don't, but he does have that line, right, about if you you need a crisis, whether it's perceived Mm -hmm. or actual, in order to get you to to let go. Mm Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. question is, can this be the bottom of our barrel? Can we say, well, this is enough. This is bad enough. We're having record heat. We're having another war in Europe, like mind-blowing stuff is going on. Could that be enough for us to say, yeah, there's a problem and we need to change? Yeah. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but you found that people were able to change. Now, were the people, were any of the people that you interviewed, did they... Did they start out very conventional, or were all of them like, "Oh, but from a young age, I was, uh, <laughs> I was a spiritual type person," or was there anybody who was like, "Oh no, I was just, you know, right in the regular thing." Whether I was thinking of, you know, maybe they had a conventional job and then left, or maybe they had a conventional approach to agriculture and then gave it up, or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, uh, they they all came from very different backgrounds. So some came to agriculture at a very late age. Um, You know, we're talking kind of like mid-30s, several actually. Some came from backgrounds of growers, you know, their their families had had been farmers or, uh, you know, had at least grown vegetables in the garden. Um, Others kind of came from a more like let's say traditional ecological knowledge um, context but the interesting thing about all of them as well as the fact that they they had kind of uh, experienced these other ways of knowing was that they all had a very transdisciplinary um, set of experiences and, 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 and learning experiences so, for example, one of the innovators that I studied had trained uh, in horticulture, but had then gone on to um, do a permaculture design certificate 
to um and to, on top of that to uh study process oriented psychology um which really had enabled her to to understand living systems as well as human systems and human nature and her own nature and um she drew all of those skills together uh, in order to combine uh, to 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 create the 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 or, or to to inform her work um and and you know she she'd also studied uh more kind of alternative uh ways of knowing such as geomancing and um she was very much uh practicing biodynamic farming um another one of the uh, innovators had um come to agriculture as uh as part of a crisis if you like uh he had had some time away from work while he was um and and this is another very interesting factor actually for for most of them none of them started off as regenerative farmers um either uh it, the, the either the regenerative part came to them later in life or just the farming full stop came to them later in life um and so for, for this particular innovator, he um, he had had time off uh, for paternity leave, a lot of time to think. He said um, he'd been doing a lot of what he referred to as doom scrolling. And uh, what was his he job? just had a moment. What, was, Pardon? What, what work was he doing? That he um, he was actually working in uh, he was working as a tree surgeon beforehand, so not a million miles away from agriculture, but still. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he he was stood. He said he had this moment of of like like an epiphany where he was stood in Tesco's with millions tills beeping, and he just thought, "This isn't okay. This can't continue. Like this is going to be the end of the world if it continues in this way." And I have to do something now for the future of my son, and I'm going to do what I can. And that so his solution was to go into regenerative farming. That's a, that's quite a lovely shift. And so there you have the um, which I, I also is echoed in the spiritual traditions. There is a moment of rupture w- mm-hmm. where the the student the seeker recognizes insanity around them in whatever shape or form it might be. It might be that they start start to just finally say, I am such a reactive person or I'm such an anxious and fearful or aggressive person. Or they Mm -hmm. just look around them and say, this culture is not working and it is going to cause a problem. And so there's this idea that it's it's a, a kind of catalyzing event. It's a conversion. So, sure. the, so we think of conversion as some, some terrible thing that Christians make uh, other people do. But the idea of Saul on the road to Damascus as he is just struck by the divine and s- says, I have to change my life. And it doesn't matter what the tradition is. This, this occurs again and again. Indigenous traditions have stories about it. Uh, all the philosophical traditions have stories about it. So there's rupture. And here, it of course, it, it, um, it's so beautiful that it's connected to his his child. But that it means an, an adult person they have a child. Mm-hmm. And t- for those people in the U.S., Tesco is like Safeway or uh, you know Kroger, a big supermarket chain. And there, 
Uh, it's not, it's, uh, it was, I don't know if it still is common to have like say organic things wrapped in plastic because that's part of how you can keep organic separated from non-organic, right? So you, here in the U.S., a lot of places it would be, we would be used to going into a natural food store where there's just a bunch of organic cucumbers. But in a mm-hmm. Tesco, he would have seen each organic cucumber wrapped in a film of plastic, right? And that would have just added. So he's, one, seeing this massive store, and he's hearing all these people in the checkout lines being checked out, and it suddenly hits him like, this is crazy. This is yeah. not, we can't live like this. It won't work. And and for me, every time I go into, like, we have these very big box stores, like we have this thing called Costco, which is like a warehouse store, which means that you go in and, and everything you buy is big. You know, it's a scale. Right. And yeah. uh, maybe it's maybe some of that stuff is being sold, say, to restaurants. But then you get to this jar of mayonnaise that's this big, right? And it, you you look at a place like Costco and you and you think, my goodness, there are Costco's all across the U.S. And, you, and when you think about what is being sold there and where it's coming from, it can really hit you. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a friend who um, he, he, he had taken psychedelics as a very... Um, chronologically adult person because in in our culture we don't have really like spiritually adult people very often and um as a very chronologically adult person at least i'm not saying i'm no comment on him he's a nice guy i really like him um and after he took uh it was mushrooms he Mm -hmm. went to costco where he would always ordinarily go and buy meat and he said he just was standing in front of the meat case and was hit by this mm-hmm. sense of, oh my God, what level of suffering am I participating in? For health reasons, he couldn't not eat meat. And, um, at least that, that's his feeling, and, and I respect that because I used to be a vegan for many years, and for, for health reasons, I felt I couldn't continue. But he then changed and, and went to local, find local regenerative farms where he could, he could go and get the meat. But it's really interesting that those shifts that you're talking about and how it might strike us. Now, how about this? The other, the woman you mentioned who started out in horticulture was that her? Uh, was that like her undergraduate degree? She be, she studied horticulture. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and no, no. Just going back to what you were talking about with the the kind of the the, the huge shift, the the catalyzing event. Um, what was really interesting was the metaphors that a lot of them used to describe this event, and it was like. Um, the famous Donella Meadows quote, you know, the scales falling from the eyes. And a lot of them said, you know, it's like seeing with new eyes. And once they'd seen it, they couldn't unsee it. And, and these are real shifts. And even when they weren't caused as a result of distress or kind of um, cognitive dissonance, if you like, um, they they still were equally motivating so one other beautiful example was uh an innovator uh, who had um had an experience she was working in sales at the time and she um was close to landing a deal where she could have potentially got roughly a million dollars commission and she didn't end up getting it. But she said that what that experience did for her was that it made her really engage with the possibility of having that amount of money and made her think, you know, what would I do? What would I do if I could, if I had that amount of money, all of the different things I could do? 
And um, what she decided she would do would be to buy a piece of land in her her own country, Peru, and because she was working in the, in the States at the time, and to regenerate it. And um, of course, she didn't get the money, but she made the decision to go ahead and do it anyway. She just kind of decided what what's really stopping me. You know, I don't need a million pounds to be able to do that. I could I could still do that now with the resources that I have. So I thought that was a really beautiful story. It is. It is really beautiful. And it's interesting, all the things that are at play when we're talking about this, because since we we have to recognize that the ego is it has some awareness that when mm-hmm. the scales fall, I might live differently. But the ego is perfectly happy with the nest that it builds. So the, I think part of what we have to recognize is that there's something in us that does not want to see what would make the scales fall. It does not mm-hmm. want the event that would precipitate the transformation. And that's yes. why I think we need to have uh, a lot of discussion about education and about, it, it, in particular, the wisdom traditions. And in particular, of all the things in the wisdom tradition, I mean, there, I, I don't want to fragment them, but I really think the emphasis on compassion is something that I try to bring out a lot. Because you mentioned empathy, and empathy is fine, but I really think we have mm-hmm. to get beyond that because empathy is our basic capacity for resonance. And the problem mm-hmm. is that the world has a lot of suffering in it. So, So this fellow who went into the grocery store, into this Costco, he had just taken psychedelics a couple of days before, and now you hear very open. And they actually create, in terms of education, we know that the neuroscience shows us that a psychedelic creates a window of learning where your brain behaves as if you were a little kid again, and you're very sensitive to things. And mm-hmm. so that having opened up his kind of heart to the awareness of mindedness all around him, you know, that the world is like alive, then he could be there and this precipitating event could happen. Mm-hmm. Most of us are going to need something to support that. And, yeah. and because of empathy distress, what happens is if we, if we just stick with empathy, then when we look at something that's bad, we feel bad. If mm-hmm. we look at something nice, we feel nice. Now, we all have that basic capacity for resonance, and so that's why we want to keep looking at the nice thing. Or the doom scrolling we just get stuck in because it's just we're stuck and we're having actually a defensive reaction. What compassion allows us to do is turn toward the difficult or scary or painful thing and mm-hmm. find it to be workable and mm-hmm. find a way through it. And so I'm just sensitive to that fact that for a lot of people listening and just for a lot of people in the world, naturally, we will avoid the thing that would make us want to change because the thought of how am I going to start farming at age whatever. Mm-hmm. And I uh, also think of here Dayton O'Hyde, who uh, at 65 uh, founded the largest horse rescue in America, massive, massive, thousands of acres, and he saved a lot of wild horses. They focus on wild mm-hmm. horses. At 65, he started that rescue operation. So it's really nice to hear that you, you saw people at different ages and, and that they were able to have these experiences, but it's not mm-hmm. easy. It's not easy to come to that because we're so scared what's going to be on the other side. And then we find right. that we have a better life. I mean, that's what yeah. your people found is that, you know, she was keeping, we could, we could wait forever to have the money to buy a piece of land or we could find a way to 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 make the leap. But in part two, I like what you were saying about enabling environments because I wonder... 
often if that's part of it is that it, could we create enabling environments by reaching out and finding other people who maybe I can't do it on my own but you know like I if I went on Facebook and said anybody interested in getting land with me and you mm-hmm. might find that there's like a lot of people and you, you might have to you know, create yourself a little tribe in order to do it, to create an enabling environment. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the amazing things that all of these innovators also had in common was that as part of their own strategy for scaling transformation, they were creating their own in- enabling environments. So for a start, by creating the, the projects that they, they, they had, established um where they were if you like kind of creating an alternative model or uh, an example of the adjacent possible inviting people to come onto their farms to see with their own eyes the fact that you know regeneration the type of regeneration they're doing is not only possible but it's actually something that's desirable and beneficial, you know, like it's not, they're not living in, in awful minimalist. um, I don't know, like they're not living in poverty. They're not, um, they're not, they're not kind of, they're not living without any creature comforts. They're, they're living completely ethically and in harmony with nature. And that's so inspiring. You know, It, it kind of, it creates these catalyzing events for people in a positive way. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that uh, that is a huge, huge part of, of changing the, the culture, the cultural narrative. You know, for example, uh, there was another innovator who in France who um, is working in particular with the local community. Um, because he's really, really concerned uh, about um, populism and, you know, the extreme rights hold on his his the local the local population and, and electorate. And, you know, he says what he's really understood is and what they're trying to do is is that they're, they're building a, a vision for the future. And they're trying to explain to people, you know, that. That, well, they're trying to dis. They're trying. They're trying to kind of go to the root of the problem, which is that these people they're not specifically racist. It's just that they feel extremely angry and disenfranchised, and you know they feel like they have no power. And so, what what they're trying to do is to help them um, help them feel, help them feel empowered by reestablishing food sovereignty. By letting them, you know, have a say in local um, politics, by by really helping them to connect with one another, and in doing that, they realise that the solutions that to their problems, whether they're economic or or social, aren't necessarily just in kind of extreme political um, alliances, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? That there's a paradox of being disempowered mm. by participating in the party that you think is going to do the right thing. That it actually doesn't mean that your you your agency is very well exercised, and that happened here with Trump a lot. Is that people just want Trump in power, and then he, he'll do the right thing. We just know he will. But then, how is that exercising your agency? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'm Greek, you know, and and Greek, Greece should not be given sole credit for developing the idea of what we call democracy. It occurred even in plenty of indigenous cultures. But certainly the Greeks recognized, and there was an old Greek saying, that when uh, democracy died when voting was invented. 
because that's not that's not agency. Democracy is participation and agency. It is not, well, I pick the person and then they do stuff, a lot of which I don't even know, and a lot of which I wouldn't agree with if I could reflect on it, and I weren't mm-hmm. so tied to party po- politics. But I, the, the enabling environment is so important, too, because that's, that's of course, part of this rupture at the schools of philosophy. So if you, if you experience that rupture in the time of Socrates and Plato, then you would go and be in the enabling environment of the academy, Plato's academy, so you could be around people who were dedicated to wisdom, love, and beauty, and wanted to live in accord with them. And maybe you did give something up, but everyone felt so happy. That's why this school persisted, is that they didn't feel, I mean, they didn't demand poverty from people, but you certainly did have to give up things that you might otherwise be attached to, but you found so much strength in them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, uh, it's beautiful that, that people can do that. And there are a couple, I was going to ask if you have any links that you could share of some of these models that you're talking about or any models that you recommend to, um, I mean, if you, if you want, we can share them in the show notes. And I can mention there's a documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Have you ever seen that, The Biggest Little Farm? Yes, it rings a bell. I it, think I might have done. It's cool because these these folks didn't have the money, and what they did was they got investors. And then there's another documentary that's called Muli, M-U-L-L-Y. What's great about the documentary Muli, and I I have my clients watch that one in particular. It's like an assignment when I'm working with people to have them, or, or if I'm teaching like an online course, I'll recommend it. Mm-hmm. But what's beautiful about Muli is that he allows something in his experience to be a catalyzing event. See, he allows something to stop him. And if you really consider it, you could see how an ordinary person might just just move right past it because mm-hmm. of the way it happens. It could be something that was just very frustrating. And then he said, ah, well, you know, whatever. But he really let it stop him. And mm-hmm. he turned inward with it. And then Later on, now his family, I don't want to spoil anything, but I will say that there was resistance in his community and in his family mm-hmm. to his this catalyzing event and this change. And later on, it got to a crisis point where they, they weren't sure how they were going to be able to go forward. Everything might fall apart, but then Muli was able to access a different way of knowing, and he was able to know something that he shouldn't have been able to know. But it's a great illustration because when we talk about epistemology, it's a fancy word and different ways of knowing. What does that mean? Well, here's a guy who was able to know something he shouldn't have been able to know, and then it saved the project. And and it also it's related to uh, regenerative agriculture too. So for all those reasons, Muli M U L L Y worth watching. And if you haven't seen the Biggest Little Farm in a while, it's worth it's it's nice because they they, they learn so much. It's a kind of permaculture approach, but it's regenerative ag- agriculture. And uh, it shows that they, 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 it was their dog that stopped them. You know, they, for the love of their dog, they, they thought, okay, we need to go and have a better life, which is really sweet. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been wonderful having you, Kate. And I, 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 we could go on for much longer. Maybe we'll, um, we'll discuss things further as you, uh, as you continue your work. What are you in the midst of now? Um, So I am just beginning um, a consultancy contract uh, with the Conscious Food Systems Alliance, um, who I will be kind of working with to facilitate the co-creation of a curriculum for local leadership for regenerative food systems. And uh, I guess the idea is to to try to develop the inner capacities that are needed to build regenerative and conscious food systems at grassroots level. 
So yeah, I'm really excited to um, to start this contract because uh, COFSA um, embodies the kind of scale that we were talking about uh, earlier. Um, it's a collaborative network that connects small initiatives that are acting locally. Um, so it has local impact, but it's um, distributed at a global scale. And uh, it's what I would describe as a nested enabling environment. Um, so um, what they're doing is effectively uh, seeking to cultivate the and, and propagate the incapacities to catalyze systems change um, by creating and combining lots of different uh, enabling environments that offer transformational learning, embodied experience on the land, traditional ecological knowledge, um, and and then they're also offering the kind of empowerment that you get through a network that's able to mobilize resources and funding and that also um, encourages kind of um, the, the the connection and peer-to-peer learning uh, between the partners um, and I think like the you know the the, the the probably the overall goal of that is to be then able to scale through collective impact so yeah. um a great initiative that I'm really looking forward to becoming more involved with. Yeah, and there's a lot there with agency. You know, just uh, as a final parting thought, I want to encourage people, as I often say, the beautiful thing about regenerative agriculture or permaculture is that when we feel overwhelmed and powerless and we say, if you have any sensitivity that, that natural cycles are being disrupted, species are going extinct, and you feel that weight in the soul and you feel powerless, but these these orientations say just grab a shovel mm-hmm. right where you live if you don't even if you have as and i i've got an interview with doug Tallamy, who's got a, a book called nature's best hope even on a tenth of an acre he's he shows that a person can make a very significant impact and even if it's a community project like i you have no land you live in an apartment well take that shovel down to the local park and talk about what you might be able to do to bring in more biodiversity, increase biomass, re-regulate the water cycles. There are things you can do. And it's nice when you're talking about the nested enabling environments, those can also be shared with the broader community. Because if if I, if, if we're, we have one nested environment that's about traditional ecological knowledge, and that would be, say, indigenous approaches, that's what we sometimes mean, Mm-hmm. then an indigenous person could teach a workshop that anybody could come to, let alone the ones who are participating directly in the program. And that could be a catalyzing event for them or could be help to create that rupture so that they see that there's a different way to do things. And similar with, with anything, you could have a transformational learning and someone could just find that there's a different way to think, a different way to approach learning and life. And that could create ripple effects as well. So it's it's really powerful and I think gives us that sense of agency and potential insight that we need to make the shift. Absolutely. So it's so great. Thank you for your work. I really it's impressive stuff that you're doing and it's so wonderful that you're connected with these initiatives and the work that you've done is is really interesting. I'll put it a link. I, I read your 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 thesis and uh, it documents this work. So if anybody's interested in looking at the the five common factors and the el- other elements uh, the three elements of scaling, the three dimensions of scaling, and so on and so on. We'll put a link for that and anything else you'd like to share that'll be in the show notes. Thank you, Nikos. Yeah, thank you so much, Kate. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, reflections, stories to share about 
seeing the world differently about uh, how we can think about economics as if people actually matter and that the world that they depend on can thrive. Anything like that, anything we touched on, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation, maybe with Kate again. In the meantime, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.